0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, we're going to talk about IQ versus EQ. USU Professors Jacob Freeman and Jacob Baggio, along with University of Texas San Antonio Professor Thomas Coyle, are studying the dynamics of nerds and poets. They want to understand the best brew of nerdiness and sensitivity to create teams that get things done. How can people work better together? And what do some groups work why do some groups work well under pressure and some groups don't? Professors Freeman and Baggio join us to discuss the differences between IQ and emotional and social intelligence. They say that researching how different intelligences work together is especially important in a high stakes world where natural resources are diminishing rapidly. We hope you'll uh, join us for the discussion, which begins following the news. Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk about IQ versus EQ today. USU professors Jacob Freeman and Jacobo Baggio, along with University of Texas San Antonio professor Thomas Coyle, are studying the dynamics of nerds and poets. They want to understand the best brew of nerdiness and sensitivity to create teams that get things done. How can people work better together, and why do some groups work well under pressure and some groups don't? Professors Freeman and Bajo join us to discuss the differences between IQ and emotional and social intelligence. And they say that researching how different intelligences work together is especially important in a high-stakes world where natural resources are diminishing rapidly. Uh, And so, as I mentioned, uh, their colleague, Thomas Coyle, is professor of psychology at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He was unable to join us uh, today. We have in studio with us Jacob Freeman. USU Assistant Professor of Anthropology in the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Professor Freeman, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Yakuba uh, Bajo is Assistant Professor in the USU Department of Environment and Society.
2: Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Uh, what are we uh, l- let's uh, let's open with a, a clip? This is from a sound clip from the very popular television uh, series. Big Bang Theory. I hopefully most people are familiar with the characters. It's a group of nerds who, uh, well, a couple of nerds with their friends who are often over. Um, they, they all have PhDs except for the engineer who has a, only a master's, their, and there and he gets ribbed uh, mercilessly. And across the hall is a beautiful girl named Penny. And uh, so here is a scene with Sheldon, the nerdiest of the nerds, who uh, is kind of socially unaware. Um, and he is, uh, they're walking up the stairs and he's talking with with Penny. Let's hear this.
1: Penny, hello.
3: Hey, Sheldon.
1: What is shaking? (laughs) I'm sorry? It's colloquial, a conversation opener. (laughs) So, do you find the weather satisfying? Are you currently sharing the triumph of some local sports team?
3: What's wrong with you? You're freaking me out.
1: I'm striking up a casual conversation with you. Sup?
3: Please don't do that.
1: All right, but I'm given to understand that when you have something awkward to discuss with someone, it's more palatable to preface it with banal chit-chat.
3: So this wasn't the awkward part? No. Oh, all right. (laughs) Up. <laughs> oh, good. I used that right.
0: <laughs> Sheldon, in his way, is is preparing the ground for a serious discussion. Uh, uh, this gets us into kind of a. Uh, Jake Freeman, you you termed this as nerds and poets. We're talking about uh, intelligence quotient, or, you know, intelligence versus social and emotional um, intelligence. So, how do how do you define those two
1: terms? Well, that's a good question, Tom. So um, there are. Social intelligence is a general term, and then there are two types of social intelligence, and one is exactly what you mentioned, emotional intelligence, and that is the ability to empathize uh, with other people. But there's also another construct called um, theory of mind. And this is really what I think uh, Sheldon is, is, has a deficit in here, is this theory of mind capacity. And theory of mind is the ability to model in your own head what other people are thinking, and how they will react to you in a given social situation. So because he has that theory of mind sort of deficit, he's trying to make up for it by, you know, uh, this socially awkward, oh, well, I heard that mm-hmm. when we uh, have something awkward to talk about, we make chit-chat, right? right? Well, somebody with good theory of mind would just know that, intuit it mm-hmm. already, come in and just be able to intuit the kinds of conversations you and I should have before we can slide into talking about something more difficult. Mm-hmm.
0: So... Um, and uh, a running gag in the in the show, if you watch the show, is that uh, Sheldon's always trying to guess was that sarcastic or not. And he, right, and, he, and he's thrilled when he can actually guess that, the, <laughs> because he doesn't have that that skill.
1: Right, exactly. He doesn't he doesn't have the ability to really mentally model what other people are thinking and their understanding of the social situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: Jacob Abajo, I wonder uh, one of the things uh, gentlemen are, are are going to study. And this is in prospect to be a, a four year study. Um, uh, National Science Foundation. So, congratulations mm-hmm. to to Thank you. To Thank this you. is a big deal. Um, is a mix of people. What what kind of a mix of people with different kind of intelligences uh,
2: works best? Right. Yes, that's uh, exactly the topic of the study. So, we don't know. We honestly don't know. There is a lot of other. There a lot of reasons why teams succeed and teams don't. There is a lot of research that has been done, but more than teams, I think we are looking at. Uh, the possibility of groups to actually understand each other and self-organize to solve uh, problems. Uh, In our case, the problems are related to natural resources. So in a changing world, how can groups self-organize and actually make the best of what they have without depleting them? Mm -hmm. Uh, We also noticed that uh, in a lot of times when somebody tells you what to do, you don't necessarily do it, even Mm -hmm. if you know it's for your best interest. Mm -hmm. I remember, I'm sure everybody didn't always do what their parents tell them to do though, in theory, parents knows best. Mm-hmm. So we are more interested in looking how groups, without no one telling them exactly how to behave, can self-organize to reach these uh, con- to reach conclusions about how the environment is changing, what are the problems that there are there. And for that reason, we probably need a mix of intelligences. We need, uh, or a mix of abilities within a group, that might be a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need somebody that understands how the system works, somebody that understands how we should communicate to avoid that awkwardness that we just felt, and uh, to avoid maybe being too direct or too or, or too not direct because there's also the other problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did my PhD in England, it took me three years to understand that interesting means not good. <laughs> so that's an example <laughs> of like I wish there would have of, been of a indirect. Of indirect, indirect, yes. a little bit too. Yeah. Much. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's
0: euphemism, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it took you a little while to pick that yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um and I want to. Uh, why don't we? Why don't we jump into the, the next clip we have here? To, you, you brought this up, uh, so. And this gets us into maybe further defining social and emotional intelligence. Uh, so this is from American Idol. Uh, this is the last year of the show. And uh, uh, this uh, I was watching, they put out on, on YouTube uh, a clip of uh, one of the very first auditions. They were saying they, they were doing this on a shoestring. They didn't know if it would work. Um, but almost immediately you have the dynamic that I think was important to the show. You had what many viewers view as the jerk, right? The the Englishman Simon Cowell, but he doesn't view himself that way, right? Um, so I think we picked the clip up uh, just at the end of a, frankly, it is a, an awful, an awful rendition of a song. And then you'll hear an argument ensue between Simon Cowell and Paul Abdul, another of the judges.
3: My girl. Stephen, my girl.
1: Stephen, Stephen, stop. Mm-hmm. That was terrible. I mean, seriously terrible.
2: I remember after the second kid in, we took a break, because like, hang on, this is insanity. If you want to achieve what you want to achieve, you will not do it with your
1: voice. I thought I was doing people a service by saying to someone, you can't sing, so go and do something which you're good at. Don't look at me like that. All a freak now.
3: I quit eight times the first day.
1: This guy, he can have 100,000 lessons. He cannot sing.
3: I disagree. I don't think anyone should be told they can't do anything, no matter what.
1: Yeah, but Paula, he's 18 years old. He's having an opportunity to sit in front of three people from the Simon,
3: music I understand what you're saying, but I disagree with what. No, you're I think
1: saying. you're patronizing him.
3: I'm not patronizing him at I all.
1: Do. It was real. It was genuine. There was no staged
3: arguments. I just was shocked that Simon could really be as rude as he was. That's been around in Hollywood forever. It's just that in America, people say it behind your back
0: not in front of your face. So, so Paul Abdul, they say it behind your back, right? Uh, uh, that was interesting. And uh, Randy, I, I'm sorry, I forgot his last name, the other judge you heard in, in that clip. So, Yakpo, this, this was, you know, rather than saying interesting, they were just saying it, you know, d- directly. And, and Paul Abdul, and I guess cultural differences play in here, but also, and you heard maybe a little team dynamic there between Simon Cowell and Paul Abdul trying to iron things out.
2: Yeah, that's uh, the team dynamics. It's always hard to uh, grasp from mm-hmm. like thirty seconds clip, no? It mm-hmm. might be, and, and most of our communication in any case is non So without seeing the gesture and how they actually communicate, it might be even harder to understand exactly what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, the directedness. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also very cultural. I'm sure of it, because uh, I know that uh, most likely in the United States, I learned that is not so nice to be not so good to be very direct mm-hmm. especially in a teaching con in, in the teaching context and in generally mm-hmm. uh, while in other societies it's expected to be direct mm-hmm. you know I want to know if I'm doing something wrong and I wanted to know it directly right. I don't want to I don't want to have to guess it mm? and, uh, and so I think that uh, cultural difference play play a role uh, also plays a role how we are raised you know, so, yeah. And uh, by culture, I don't mean only different countries. I mean, actually, different the, families the, the raised in different ways. Yeah. No,
0: So uh, this issue of direct or not direct, that's why it took you a while to learn yeah. that the code word interesting meant bad. Yeah,
2: most likely, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I'm always mm-hmm. being used to like, uh, <laughs> no, this is not good, this right. is bad, just right. redo it. Right. You know, that That's going to be, and, uh, you know, you get used to it, and uh, it's not a bad thing uh, to be direct. I mm-hmm. don't believe it's, uh, you have to have certain sensitivities, but sometimes it's good that people tell you that, so you can improve. Mm-hmm. If not, you will never improve yourself right. in a certain way, or it's much harder to do it.
0: Jacob Freeman. Uh, so, so uh, based on that uh, clip, uh, you know, we're talking about cultural differences, mm-hmm. um, uh, and some people might perceive that Simon Cowell is just being rude. In fact, that he's you know was widely is kind of widely perceived as as being rude, at least in America. But he says, and I I, I take him at his word that he says he's just he's just being direct. He's doing them a favor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in that context, maybe he is. I mean, you can see it that way, and I think context really matters here. So, you know, in this situation, you've got somebody coming in that Simon Cowell's probably never going to see again, and he doesn't have to cooperate with this person ever again to solve some kind of problem. So he can be direct. He can say whatever he wants to this person and couch it as a, you know, I'm trying to do them a favor. But in the kinds of problems and situations we're dealing with, we're talking about, groups of people who are trying to organize, don't have any top-down structure, nobody telling them what to do. They're trying to figure out how to cooperate together over time. And so if you take the Simon Cowell approach in that kind of group, probably not going to be so good because you're going to start hurting people's feelings. And you've got to continue to cooperate with them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that context really matters. And this is a really nice illustration of the kind of difference between that Mm -hmm. situation and uh, the kind of self-organizing groups that we want to understand how they get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so
0: you'd, you probably would be less effective to have a whole group of Sheldons because they they wouldn't be working with each other. Uh, on the other hand, I guess if you had a lot of very sensitive people who didn't have the knowledge that you needed, so so we are talking about diver- your theory is diversity, right? Yeah, so is, is what we want.
1: So, so the idea here is that each individual has um, different capabilities or abilities in terms of cognition. And so one of those abilities is general intelligence, the ability to recognize patterns in your environment. And that's, that's really useful and helpful, right? And Sheldon would be a person who's incredibly good at recognizing patterns in their environment and abstracting those patterns, and he's good at math and physics. So you need those people in, in, a, in a social ecological system, which is what we're studying. So when when you've got people who are cooperating socially to manage natural resources. But you also need people who, uh, or so our theory would predict, that are good at reading each other's minds and predicting the behavior of other individuals. And those two cognitive uh, abilities don't necessarily always go together. They're not necessarily negatively correlated. Not everybody who's as smart as Sheldon is going to have low theory of mind. That's mm-hmm. not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Some people are high on both. Some people in the middle. It's just a range of variation. So, so the idea behind our theory is it's not just the individuals that are in the group, but the mix of capacities and the mix of cognitive abilities of those people in the group that leads to a American word <laughs> chemistry um, and allows them to really be successful above and beyond what you might predict if you just looked at the individuals alone. Mm-hmm.
0: Is it Jacobo? Just a, a side note. Is that an American word? Is that a
2: no? I think uh, chemistry. Uh, chemistry that <laughs> you can no. You have uh, you have it. Uh, you have in that concept say concept. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's okay. like a chemistry okay. in the <laughs> okay. team or in the group that makes them something different <laughs> okay. than the sum of the individual. Okay. And abilities. Right. No? And that's, <laughs> that's a good thing I mean, because yeah. it, may, it may suggest that
1: you know this is something that might be general across cultures yeah. or at least Western cultures. Yeah.
0: That'd be interesting. So, so you, I, I, I guess the the ideal here would be the results. That you come up with will be found to be applicable across all cultures in terms of
1: teamwork. And I mean, that's teamwork. the hope. I mean, the the theory behind it is that these that these cognitive processes are highly general to the to the human species, and yeah. um, you know, the inspiration for this research comes uh, part of it comes out of uh, a study by the man by, by a man by the name of Robin Dunbar who's an evolutionary psychologist who works in England, who's developed theories of uh, human evolution and the evolution of intelligence in primates in general. And so the idea is sometime in our evolutionary past, uh, primates and and humans started living in larger group sizes. Why that occurs, he doesn't say, but if you start to live in larger group sizes, there becomes a benefit from an evolutionary standpoint for individuals who have greater theory of mind capacity because you can navigate those larger social groups better. Mm And you can be more more effective as an individual, and so the whole basis of his theory is that, you know, once you get groups with individuals who have higher theory of mind or social intelligence, they're better at solving ecological problems together than groups with uh, lower theory of mind capacity. And no one's ever actually tested that proposition. It's actually a hard proposition to, to try and evaluate. But through the experiments that, that Jacopo and Tom and I have designed, we think we've come up a come up with a way. Uh, to begin to evaluate that proposition. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're bringing Tom's expertise, which is in general intelligence, into this as well um, and, and thinking about how the diversity of intelligence may lead to better group performance. Hmm. Let's take a break. Uh, when
0: we come back, I want to talk about irrigation. And, and you, you, you might be asking, well, what does irrigation have to do with this? Uh, it has a lot to do with it. And uh, Jacopo done some experiments with, uh, with this. And we'll talk about, uh, what is it, common pool,
2: common pool resources,
0: resources yes. uh which we all share in and that that really stresses the system right the social yeah. system where we all have to cooperate And it's getting more and more high stakes, right, with with climate change and diminishing uh, resources. Uh, We'll talk about uh, all of that when we uh, come back. We're talking with uh, Jacob Freeman, USU Assistant Professor of Anthropology, Jacopo Baggio, Assistant Professor in the USU Department of Environment and Society. Um, They, along with Thomas Coyle, Professor of Psychology at University of Texas-San Antonio, have been awarded a National Science Foundation grant to study um, team building, cooperation, and um, the diversity, how diversity of intelligences We're talking about IQ versus social and, and uh, emotional intelligence uh, work together and what's the best mix for, for the best teams and for broader society. More follows the break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Special Collections and Archives.
3: Merrill-Clazier Library
2: presenting the 22nd Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture by Patricia Nelson Limerick,
3: Thursday, September 29th at 7 p.m. in the Logan Tabernacle. Information at 797-2663.
0: This is
1: Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. I recently heard an employee complain that my boss doesn't respect my opinion. Instead of giving sympathy, I said, leave your opinion at home. In a good work environment, opinions don't matter. Facts matter. Facts are data combined with analysis. If you have data and solid analysis, then your leader and colleagues better listen, and they probably will. But your opinion doesn't matter. So leave your opinion at home and bring facts and good analysis to work. The Management Minute is brought to you by
0: our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Time, Tom Williams, and we're joined by two USU professors who have been awarded a National Science Foundation grant to study cooperation, teamwork, how society can better share common resources, and specifically looking at different types of intelligence. IQ, which of course we know a lot about, and emotional and social intelligence, and how do those two types of intelligences work together. And uh, uh, Jacob Freeman is USU Assistant Professor of Anthropology, Jacobo Baggio Assistant Professor in the USU Department of Environment and Society. Their colleague in this grant, Thomas Coyle, Professor of Psychology at the University of Texas, San Antonio, who's not able to join us uh, today. Um, you can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or uh, to our email, upraccess at gmail.com, at gmail.com. Um, so let me start the segment with, with you, Jake Freeman, um, just to look at the, the stakes. You said before we went to break, the, this particular aspect had not been studied before, which is surprising.
1: Well, this, this proposition that groups uh, that have individuals with higher theory of mind or social intelligence, as we've been talking about, are better at solving ecological problems together um, than groups that would have individuals with lower social intelligence. Yeah, no, that. That proposition has not been directly tested. One, because it's it's difficult to design experiments to test it, um, but also just because of the um, the disciplinary nature of the academy. Sometimes you get the people who developed that weren't weren't thinking about methods for really directly te- testing that proposition. So that's one of the great things about the collaboration between. Uh, Jacopo and I and Tom is that we all come from different disciplines, and by bringing that diversity of experience <laughs> and knowledge together, we've come up with ways to try and evaluate some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, you you three professors have a
0: group of three. Um, without naming names, is are do you have some of these dynamics in your <laughs> your group? Do you have nerds and <laughs> poets? Do you have uh.
1: Well, I'm yeah. the, the <laughs> most social of the social scientists in the group. Maybe I don't know. Uh, Yoko yeah. is is great.
2: Um, uh, it might be some of that dynamic, but uh, obviously we haven't tested ourselves. That yeah. would be a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you, you can test we, yourself first. Yeah, you can test yourself too. But then because you know how the game works and right. you know what the objective is. Yeah. It's tricky to test right. yourself and say, OK, now I forget everything right. I know and let's try to do this without me ever knowing and ever studied this.
0: And that, by the way, this was a gossip stress test. No, I'm just making it up because, you know, uh, uh, Professor Coyle's not here. So you he could have said whatever you wanted. I guess <laughs> He would hear the tape, you know, later, I'm, I'm sure so. Yeah. Could be stresses on the on the experimentation as you, as you go along. Uh, so, Jacob Freeman, uh, you you've been quoted saying uh, if we already knew everything about about you know team building, what makes teams uh, work, the U.S. Army would wouldn't have spent millions of dollars every year to figure out how to make groups you know better at working together.
1: Well, I might have been overstating that a little <laughs> bit, but but the army does put a lot but, of research but the, into it this. Is, and, it is true that yeah. that the U.S. military puts a lot of research into this, and in fact, Tom Coyle and his colleagues at UTSA, which is a really. And San Antonio is a very big military town. Um, they, do, they do research with the U.S. military, both Air Force and Army, on similar kinds of issues, leadership and how intelligence relates to leadership, which affects uh, the performance of groups. So there's a, it's really dynamic literature. And, mm-hmm. and the truth is we have some intuitions about what makes teams work well together, um, but we don't know everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always more that we can learn. And uh, so i turn to uh,
0: Jacopo Baggio. Um, you know, military is very high stakes. It's mm-hmm. life or death. But as a society, it's very high stakes, right? It's resources. And, uh, and so uh, tell me uh, the definition of common pool resources, and then uh, tell me about the irrigation game that you so, involved in.
2: Yeah, with uh, some colleagues at Arizona State University uh, that study, actually, irrigation games, uh, have studied it for years and years. Uh, that stems from the work from Elinor Ostrom, in nepal that is mainly based on irrigations and uh, we discovered that uh, you know when the tragedy of the commons by Hardin came out in 68 uh, everybody thought oh these common pool resources they're going to be bad we need to privatize the land we need to have rules we need to have a very strict top-down approach and then slowly in the literature we found yes there are cases in which that is true but which uh, there are also a lot of cases in which that is not true that means that people or groups came together and they magically <laughs> i would say magically right now it's not really magically there are some chemistry that goes on and allows these things to happen in a nice way but they were able to actually manage their resources successfully and irrigation game exemplify the fact that we need cooperation from everybody because you have to maintain the irrigation system you know it's not something that uh, mysteriously magically uh, patches itself if, if it's broken uh, you, and, but when the water comes in then there is an inbuilt asymmetry of power if i'm first in line or if i have water rights in the united states in a lot of other places is first in line i can get all the water and leave all my other fellow fellow uh, group members stranded without with no water to irrigate their their fields that does not happen though because i need their Investment in effort uh, or money to actually maintain the system, and so it's a great like dynamic about the fact that uh, we need these cooperation, these collective action, and sometimes we are forced to like in this case, you no, know, we are actually forced to cooperate by the system itself. But also there are other cases in which we just do it. So why is that? Um, maybe because we are not so selfish, and uh, as uh, some some uh, disciplines or some uh, some studies portray us, uh, but also we are not very altruistic. And there was a so what, what is the mix? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what makes us cooperate? And that's where the mixes between the general versus social intelligence or the mix between people that have different types of abilities, cognitive and uh, to understand the system and to understand each other and communicate with each other, helps us and uh, allows us to actually make these things work. You mm-hmm. know, military is very high stakes, obviously, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. life of death. And a lot of cooperation studies have been done on warfare where, you know, because it's a, it's a high-stake cooperation. I cooperate, but I risk my life to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I don't, then there are punishments, there are things that happen. Uh, and so it's very important. It's about group. You know, we have this group identity sometimes mm. uh, that happens. Uh, and so we play these irrigation games, and we actually found that uh, most of the time it's... Uh, it's at the beginning of the game is very important you no, know, if you are trustworthy of others, if you trust others. But then while the game goes on, because it's a repeated interaction, as Jacob was mentioning, that's when it's really important mm-hmm. to have this social intelligence. Now, I cannot just be very direct and expect no consequences mm-hmm. if I have a continuous interaction with you uh, and so. And that's why, by the way, we didn't mention Tom Cole. You never know. You, you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you so never you're know. You're going to have to work with him. <laughs> you yeah, have, to right. with him. you <laughs> have to work with him. There you go. And so we found that out that uh, because of this uh, continuous interaction, there, mm-hmm. there, there is this mix. And so there, they have these things happens, and the collective action happens. Yeah. And it's important.
0: Right. It but uh, before I go to the next question, I, I can't resist this either. <laughs> um, do you, I, I guess, Jacob, if you now hear Jacopo saying the word interesting, then, then you know what that means, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, bringing this to, I guess, broader, you know, irrigation, and, and we know it is high stakes. We'd, I had a guest uh, just, I uh, think, last week who was telling a story that their father experienced where he encountered on his property a, a, a neighbor um, who was stealing his water. And uh, he had to let him steal the water at that occasion because the guy had a gun, right? That these these mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> these instances do happen. Um, thankfully, in these days, hopefully, you know, not too much. But it does illustrate the high stakes uh, um, type of uh, or nature of these issues. And then you write these things large. You know, we're talking about resources for the entire world.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, it's a highly general problem. So in this in this common pool resource dilemma uh, that Jacopo was talking about, you always have uh, a situation in which it's in the short-term interest of somebody to steal or cheat and take the resources, and that's what's going on with this gentleman you talked about who's got the gun, and he's taking a firearm with him to help him do that. Uh, but it's in the longer-term interest of the group that everybody cooperates, and so it's trying to figure out um, – why groups uh minimize that cheating and stealing and some groups are not so great at minimizing that cheating and stealing and when you when you're not good at it eventually the group dissolves and it just becomes every person for them for themselves and and this is a class of problems that generalizes to all kinds of things for instance climate change is is one of them so if you're you're putting uh pollutants in the air it's in the short-term benefit for me to do that i drive to work so um you know i'm i'm doing that but it's having a consequence that's um, that builds and affects everybody mm-hmm. when everybody does the same thing, and so you know that's a larger scale problem. That's much different than these local irrigation problems or local pool resource problems, where you face to face interaction, mm-hmm. talking to people all the time. How do you get people to cooperate on a global scale? Wow, yeah. I mean that's a real challenge. So that's, that's that is a big one. Uh, the, you know, the air pollution is that's a
0: great example. And I, I was just thinking, well, you know, how do we because I. In Cache Valley, on some of these really bad days, you see the the electronic signs up saying "Please reduce your driving," and it's you know it's bumper to bumper. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, in those cases. We're not face-to-face. We're, we're just trying as a society kind of generally try to solve these problems.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a big thing is the face-to-face interaction. It comes back to these cognitive capacities. I mean, that's where social intelligence really helps you is in face-to-face interactions or at least in smaller groups where you know you're interacting with other individuals on a regular basis. Most of the people you see in the car
2: next to you, well, a lot of times you have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some studies indicate actually that just chit-chat. Is enough to help us cooperate more. Oh, okay. Just uh, we're talking about football, for example, mm-hmm. and then right. suddenly we get to know each other somehow, and we feel that well, we probably should work together for something. But obviously, you don't do that with the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Most of the exchanges with the neighbors in traffic in the car are not are not, <laughs> not, not, are good, not, are not good. yeah, it's
0: not good. So so just uh, getting to know yeah. someone, just a little chit chat could could help. Could, yeah. I want to have you talk, Jacob Freeman, a bit about the um, theory that you're trying to prove, I guess, or disprove uh, uh, this diversity of intelligences. thats what Your theory is that a diversity of intelligences in any team or, I guess, a larger society would, would would produce the best team?
1: Well, Well, in a team that's working together to try and solve a problem, especially a problem related to natural resources, we think that a diversity of intelligences will have beneficial effects for the team, will allow them to be better at managing the resources. And the reason is because you have people, in some individuals with good general intelligence, good at recognizing patterns in their environment, they can uh, see when the dynamics of the environment change. So they can see all of a sudden, oh, whoa, the rainfall pattern changed. We better change our behavior. We need to reorganize how we're managing the irrigation system because the flow of water is now different. But then you also have those those individuals with the high social intelligence who inevitably when somebody steals, because, right, we may not be purely rational, selfish actors, but we are rational and <laughs> selfish sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody inevitably does steal, you've got somebody in there with that high social intelligence who can say, yes, they did steal, but here's a way that we can institute a graduated punishment to sort of get them to not do that again. And. Yeah, Bob, I know he was stealing from you, but, you know, he's, been, he's served his time. He's gotten his punishment. So let's, you know, let's keep working together because it'll all be beneficial for us. So if you have both of those things, somebody who can recognize changes in the biophysical environment, a change in rainfall pattern, the flow of water, and somebody who can recognize, if you will, perturbations in the social environment when something is kind of going wrong and can work to smooth those out, those groups should have better performance over times, over time than groups that don't have those that Mm. diversity of intelligence capacities. Mm. Uh, I think you used this example in an article, um, Jake Freeman.
0: Uh, So Sheldon is kind of the uh, sort of stereotypical image of of a very intelligent person who perhaps doesn't have the social intelligence. intelligence. On the other end of the spectrum, Captain Picard. Did you use that example? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so
1: I mean, I, I think Captain Picard is a great leader, right? He's portraying a great leader, and he's got really excellent theory of mind skill. Like if you watch Star Trek, he he understands what uh, his um, uh, the people on his crew are thinking and feeling, and anticipates their behavior. And he really manages the personalities really well. You know, if you watch that that show, uh, Riker, the first officer, also you know would display high social intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the the optimal situation would be to have
0: on your team a a, a bunch of Sheldon slash Picards, right? Yeah, well,
1: right. I mean, if we're going to continue on with uh, Star Trek here, I'm, I'm maybe revealing myself as a little bit of a Trekkie. Always welcome, Axis <laughs> Utah. Always welcome. So, um, so Data, right? Yeah. he's a he's an android, but his general intelligence is through the roof. He's yeah. incredibly smart. And so you put him with Captain Picard. And, uh, you know, they always defeat the Romulans or whatever. They've, they're a great team. It's the combination. Yeah, it's the combination, yeah. 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 So that's, you know, at base, that's what our theory is. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so the, from the experience that you did, the games, this was a game, right? Irrigation yes. game. Um, uh, scarce resource. Mm. Everybody has to cooperate. Uh, did what were the results dude I guess varying results depending on who was playing the game
2: well we we didn't test intelligences so we we don't know about the diversity Mm -hmm. of cognitive abilities that we had in that case what we do know though is that a lot of times when you have repeated interactions your action always depends on what other people do you know there's a famous tit-for-tat strategy Mm -hmm. type thing. so I cooperate if you cooperate but if you try to not cooperate or be like stealing water, then maybe I'm gonna steal your water Mm -hmm. as well. So that's when it comes, as Jacob was saying, it's very important to have somebody that says, look, maybe we shouldn't retaliate that much. Mm -hmm. No, We might have need these graduated sanction. So he stole the water one time, then it gets punished in a certain way. Two times, a little bit more, three times, four times. Mm -hmm. So you have this type of like, this scale of punishment that you can have. And it's uh, one of, uh, it's very important to have, as monitoring, No, because obviously, uh, if you uh, if you don't even realize they're still in your waters, and then you can't do much about mm-hmm. it. Right, and that's that's another problem. So you have a lot of other things that needs to be happening. You no, know, but at the basis of it is this ability of uh, us uh, as a species to communicate and cooperate with each other. We cooperate at scales that are unimaginable for other species. You no, know? we cooperate in the United States alone. You can. Think about it is some sort of level of cooperation between most of the individual in this country. Mm-hmm. Now that's uh, that's something that uh, no other primates no has. Maybe you social insects. Yeah, yeah. No bees or, well, right. or wasps or ants. They might well wasps maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> they they might have it, but uh, it's pretty pretty unique, pretty interesting how that works. So the results we don't know about the diversity of cognitive abilities. What we do know is that a lot of times depends on. The beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. If I play and I give the signal that I'm gonna be very selfish, then uh, we are probably not gonna recuperate. Mm. Uh, but if I, in the beginning, I give the signal that, uh, or everybody in the group gives us some sort of signal that we should cooperate without communication, because that game prohibited communication. Then uh, the the things go well, go pretty well. So you always leave some water for the last guy. No? Mm. And, uh, and uh, it works until the end. You, know, you have various rounds in which this game is working, and until the end, everybody has a little bit of water. Everybody invests in the resource, and everybody is better off. Now, the game that we will play in the future, we we hope to see actually more connect, more uh, relationship between the actual cognitive abilities of individuals that play the game and uh, the groups that are playing the game and uh, how they perform. Mm-hmm. Because we are going to change uh, also like certain conditions. And so, what is the ability of uh, of uh, of groups to uh, understand, as Jacob was saying, change, but also to communicate that understandment without being too direct or too, or like, creating problems within the social system. So I think that social intelligence might comes into play also when you have to communicate, no? So or mediate from the Sheldon mm-hmm. to uh, Cap, you know, Captain Picard mediates between Data and the crew, Because uh, right. he tries to like, okay, let's sweeten the pill in a certain way, right? No? right. But right. make people understand how we should behave,
0: right? Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about the, the game, because sure. you can call it a game. I don't want to give too much away, right, because you don't want to. Th- these will be USU students? or That's correct. We will mm-hmm.
1: have USU students and students in Texas playing In Texas the
0: game. playing the game. So we don't want to, uh, you know, um, color the game too too much. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, Jake Freeman, some of your uh, research. Very interesting that how this might apply in terms of uh, – uh, uh, resources and uh, you, you studied if I've got this right private property property in I guess from, from ancient times uh-huh. we'll, we'll bring that in as, as well and uh, more of this idea of cooperation and diversity when we continue more follows the break I'm Jeremy Hobson how much red meat should you eat according to one nutritionist the answer is less than you currently do
3: including some meat in a diet that's mostly made up of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. Absolutely fine. Some of the world's healthiest populations do that. But we have the balance completely
1: wrong.
0: That's next time on Here and Now.
2: Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Jobs.
0: Manufacturing jobs, you hear it on the campaign trail all the time. What, though, is
2: reality?
3: Oh, middle-class America. So many jobs are coming back $12 to $15 an hour. What Like, what are you going to do at $12 to $15 an hour? You cannot live on your own.
0: I'm Kai Rizdal. Part 2 of our series, How the Deck is
1: Stacked, next time on Marketplace.
0: Tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about IQ versus EQ. USU professors Jacob Freeman and Jacobo Baggio, along with University of Texas San Antonio professor Thomas Coyle, are studying the dynamics of nerds and poets, as they put it. They want to understand the best brew of nerdiness and sensitivity to create teams that get things done. How can people work together, and why do some groups work well under pressure, some groups don't? So professors Freeman and Baggio are joining us to discuss the differences between IQ and emotional and social intelligence, and uh, they have a national science have been awarded a national science foundation grant to uh, to do this study uh, especially high stakes in our uh, world where natural resources are diminishing. Jacob Freeman is uh, USU Assistant Professor of Anthropology. Jacob Baggio is Assistant Professor in the USU Department of Environment and Society. You can join the conversation a couple of ways by phone, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or uh, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail. Uh, dot com. Uh, so, Jacob Freeman, tell me a little bit more about the, the game.
1: It could be, a, I guess, a game
0: Yeah. So that be so, played.
1: So, in general terms, we're, we're asking um, participants to play games. So, let me go back to the, the theory real quick. So, remember, uh, our idea is that uh, teams who have individuals with high general intelligence will be good at recognizing patterns in the biophysical environment, the ecology of the resource, and teams that have individuals with high social intelligence will be good at smoothing out social kind of perturbations, social conflicts that arise as teams, as groups repeatedly interact with each other. And so what we've what we've done is we've set up a game uh, that gets people to begin cooperating to harvest a resource uh, where their harvest decisions depend on each other. And then halfway through the game, we're going to change the rules on them, so to speak. We're going to make a change to the resource, or we're going to make a change to the group, and so we're going—that's going to allow us to begin to evaluate the effect of social intelligence uh, and general intelligence on coping with and adapting to those changes.
0: And so, I, I, I guess you'll be looking for maybe not with their knowledge, but looking for people with, I guess, high IQ versus the. Social and emotional intelligence, or are you just to see how it plays out?
1: Yeah, we'll just we'll have, we'll recruit participants, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll uh, give them tests ahead of time, but we won't try to force them into any groupings mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what we'll do is set up a, a framework to test statistically how well they respond to the change in the game. Yeah,
0: Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, Jake Freeman, your, uh, some of your uh, research. Um, so property rights and agriculture—you uh, say that it affects the ability of human societies to sustainably uh, feed ourselves, generate economic uh, growth. Um, th- this is this is interesting to me. So anthropology, in, right? So looking so, at property you know, rights.
1: Anthropology is the study of humanity from our very beginning to now, and so it takes this big time perspective. And if you look, at, you look at the world today, you know, there are a lot of theories about what generates economic growth and uh, productivity in agriculture, and that is having secure property rights is, is a big part of that, uh, if you look around the development literature. And so, uh, at one point in our time, our species really didn't have any well-defined uh, property rights. Hunters and gatherers are well-known for treating resources as what we call open access, <laughs> Well, which is even different from common pool resources. These are resources in which uh, my, deplete, my harvest of the resource doesn't deplete it for anybody else, uh, and so we, we, we generally share territories. Uh, so, beginning about ten thousand years ago in the Near East, um, and you know, five thousand years ago in North America, a lot of this started to change, and we started to see well-defined territories in which people were not able to flow as freely between. And this development of territoriality is, is often associated with the adoption of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, the way it fits into this research is that just trying to understand why you get shifts in the way people manage resources uh, and how people adapt to changing environments. Hmm. Another thing, a related to
0: topic of research for you is trying to find out why some societies adopted agriculture, others stayed with hunting <laughs> and gathering.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of different theories out there, but one theory is that uh, with population growth, uh, you get the emergence of these common pool resource dilemmas. And so in some environments, one way to solve those Uh, dilemmas is for everybody to adopt agriculture and so if you imagine you've got a wild resource and your harvest of that resource is dependent on everybody else if people are harvesting too much you'll collapse the resource base so one way around that is for everybody to adopt agriculture and it becomes they have it's like they have their own little resource now that they can control of course there's cooperation that has to happen on top of that to help weed each other's fields or maybe irrigation Um, but you know that's that's one way so it's a it's a it's an adaptation, and you know theoretically there are probably different uh, intelligence capacities of those groups that related to how well they adopted agriculture. Mm. Uh,
0: today, we, and you mentioned this in your uh, in your little uh, uh, piece that you sent over. Uh, today, we'd call that uh, disruptive innovation.
1: Yeah, uh, you they know, didn't know
0: they were doing disruptive innovation, but they, they you know those who adopted agriculture were doing that.
1: Yeah, it was very disruptive. I mean, it's totally changed our world. You look around our world today, and every every environment you know, that we see is, is highly managed, and that's a result of agriculture, which allows population growth, uh, which then requires us to do more agriculture and manage our environment ever more um, finely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh,
0: so uh, I want to turn to uh, Jaco Bajo for a couple of points of his uh, um, interesting research. Yakubajo mentioned the tragedy of the commons, mm-hmm. and I want to relate that to, you know, the early, very early pro- private property rights. Treasury tragedy of the commons... Uh, with my vague memory, when I study this, is that, that uh, private property is, is needed, right? You, you, uh, the tragedy of the commons is that if we, if it's collective, we don't take care of it.
1: Right, so the idea of the tragedy of the commons, as Jacopo was mentioning earlier, is that uh, you've got some area that you, it's very difficult to exclude other people from, so they can come in, but our resource harvest decisions are dependent on each other. So if I put more cows in the pasture, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wipe out the pasture. And so there's always an incentive for me to put the cows on so that, they can, uh, so that my cows can become fatter. Um, but when, we, when I do that, if everybody's doing that, then the whole pasture will be gone and nobody uh, will be able to feed their cows. And so one of the original ideas from Garrett Hardin was that the only way to solve this problem was by creating uh, private property rights. And so some research has shown, and that's what Jacopo was talking about, that you don't always need private property rights to solve this problem. Sometimes groups work together just to manage the rate of how many cows get put on that land. And so, you know, one of the ideas with the, with the hunter-gatherer economies in the past is that, you know, you, you're, you get a shift from these open-access resources to common pool resources, and some groups solve that problem by adopting private property rights, and other groups solve the problem by adopting different uh, different kinds of institutions. Mm.
0: So, Jacobo. Bajo... Picking up that uh, thread, uh, one of the things you uh, study is conditions under which collective action succeeds and uh, analyze what drives collective action.
2: Yes, so one of the things that my drives collective action is actually this diversity of uh, cognitive abilities. And uh, we hope to find this sweet spot in which we have not too much diversity, not too little diversity because probably maybe too much diversity might not be so good either. Uh, still, that's an open question. And other things we do is also to look at uh, a lot of data out there and see what is the literature telling us about when did these uh, uh, groups succeeded in managing sustainably their natural resources. Uh, there is a lot of literature out there, especially related to Elinor Ostrom's work that talks about it and and uh we try to summarize it and see well first of all are there differences between different types of resources you No, know, between forestries irrigation mm. system fisheries because not all are the same the tuna moves has an incredible mobility you No, know? we find it basically all over the world while the forest moves very very slowly basically we can say it's kind of like fixed at least in our lifetime No, maybe it moves every thousands of years uh, with the seeds and so Are these mobility of the natural resources maybe... Uh, conducive to different sets of uh, combinations of not only cognitive abilities, but also social institutions or or institutions in general or institutional uh, agreements that allows us to manage them correctly. Uh, What we have found so far is that there are differences between uh, types of resources and how people actually are able to manage them successfully, uh, what type of institution institutional agreements or institutional design principles uh, they have uh, and uh, allow them to do it. And we found, for example, that Monitoring is very important in irrigation systems and forestry, but it's very hard to do in fisheries, so it's not so important. Well, it's very important uh, to have a clear, defined social boundary, so which individual have access to that resource? And that goes back to, who knows, maybe that is when the, the social intelligence comes in really into place and say, look, for these type of resources that are highly mobile, we really need to find a way to... Uh, work together and to define who is in the group and who's not and how we're going to do and what agreements we're going to have. While in other cases, it's more like, oh, I have to monitor and I have to make sure that everybody is doing their part. And if not, we have some sort of sanctions going on. And those differences happens not only because of the natural resources are different, not that we are managing, but also there is this different intensity in the technology we need to use them. So, for example, an irrigation system can be made of uh, cement, cement canals or can be made of like uh, ditches and dirt. Uh, vessels that we have like trolleys and amazing technology for fisheries. Or we have uh, me that goes fishing with my with my pole. That's how you say mm-hmm. Canada basket? <laughs> yeah, with my pole. So there is a lot of difference there. And how these combinations between technology needed and natural resource mobility or other factors that affects it, regrowth rates and things like that, influences... Uh, and are influenced by these uh, social arrangements between humans. And uh, the, the great thing is about this study is that we are going a little bit behind the social arrangement, what, what comes before that, I th- well, before or after, that's uh, always a tricky question for somebody. But uh, how are our cognitive abilities helping us in shaping these arrangements? Uh, what is the importance of recognizing, oh, look, the resource actually moves, or the resource is changing, and the importance of saying, hey, you, you shouldn't do that because, but saying it in a nice way. Mm. So we avoid like these conflicts that might happen. We avoid having to pull a gun. That would be really not good. Always good, always best. (laughs) Tom, Tom, do you mind if I just... Just just one minute. I just want
1: to try to break it down real simply. So Jacopo mentioned these eight design principles that help um, us successfully manage common pool resources. What we're trying to do... Is figure out how cognitive abilities result in those eight design principles sometimes and the conditions under which uh, the mix of cognitive abilities don't result in those eight mm-hmm. design principles so if we can figure out how those eight design principles emerge now maybe we've got some power to help design those principles better in new situations we haven't encountered before well, very good yeah. and I kind of just a parting shot I can't help but thinking that and I hope that
0: maybe we can apply some, some results of your research to you know, to Congress, to the to, <laughs> to, to Washington. Well, that's a whole different study, I think. Um, we have uh, been pleased to have with us in uh, studio Jacobo Baggio, uh, who is an prof- assistant professor in the USU Department of Environment and Society. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: And Jacob Freeman, USU assistant professor uh, of anthropology. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And they, along with their colleague Thomas Coyle, professor of psychology at University of Texas, Antonio, have been awarded a uh, grant, uh, NSF grant, a uh, big grant to uh, study uh, intelligent uh, IQ and uh, EQ, and how that results in teamwork and uh, natural resources, uh, uh, solving problems in natural resources. Uh, thanks for listening uh, today. We now go to commentator Gina Wickwar, a Logan resident, speaking on the 9 11 tragedies.
3: Fourteen years ago, I wrote a radio commentary a week before the first anniversary of 9-11 and presented it here on UPR. I brought that commentary out to read again to you because it still reverberates within me and with you too, I know. Next week, the city of New York will hold a simple but powerful service to mark the one-year anniversary of the horrors of the 9-11 attack on its World Trade Center. According to press reports, world leaders will light an eternal light, Governor Pataki will deliver the Gettysburg Address, and former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani will lead a reading of the names of the 2,823 victims. I'll be thinking of each one of them when he does. Our son and his family live about five blocks north of Ground Zero, on Leonard Street, a narrow block running between West Broadway and Greenwich. Early last November, when we visited them, the massive excavation was in its beginning phases. The crumpled steel pillars of the Twin Towers still stood like twisted sentinels above the hissing steam that arose from unextinguished fires. The smell of burnt metal remained pervasive. Last month, we visited our son again and spent most of the time with our granddaughter, taking her to the Bronx Zoo, traveling to Ellis Island, and window shopping uptown. But on the last day of our visit, we returned to the place where so many had lost their lives. We walked down Broadway to Trinity Church on Wall Street and then wended our way back to Liberty Street to stand at the chain link fence that encloses the vast, empty footprint of the once proud towers. A storm was brewing and a savage west wind came roaring off the Hudson River. Though the site cleanup was officially finished in May, hundreds of pilgrims like us still amassed to peer through the chain link to look down into the seven story chasm that had been excavated to watch earth-moving trucks and men and women in hard hats, lumber up and down earthen ramps, reinforcing the retaining embankments that kept out the river. The wind buffeted us as we continued northward on church, lifting billowing clouds of dust from the cavernous hole and funneling it upwards to the street level. As the dust enveloped us and I tasted it on my lips, I was engulfed in sorrow, knowing that in it were the molecules, the atoms the essence of the dead. My husband and I stopped and held each other, sensing they had made their presence known and were here with us, indeed, had become part of us, their final resting place on our lips, in our hair, in our eyes. When Rudy, Giuliani, and others read their names next week, I'll remember how those people blew into my life and shrouded me in their being, and I can never forget them. This is Gina Wickwar.